Our New Testament reading this evening is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And while 11 through 22 is a cohesive unit, it's also a rich and dense high point of this epistle. So I'm going to break this into a three-part sermon series. In the whole section, Paul will explain our unity in Christ in three ways, which escalate in wonder and blessedness. First, we are a church. Second, we are a family. And third, we are a temple. So you can catch this escalation as we read chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And then tonight we'll focus on verses 11 through 13. Ephesians 22, 11 through 22, this is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressed expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Southern California, you'll see a lot of people with the same skin tone as me. And in Texas, the population of Mexico just surpassed every other ethnic background. This prompted one comedian to joke, Texas? You mean Texas. It will come as no shock to anyone, though, that a good number of Mexicans living in SoCal and Texas have a dream in their hearts, but no official citizenship documents in their pockets. But whatever political views you may have on that subject, anyone can recognize that non-citizens face unique experiences of separation from the people, the culture, and the benefits of the nation or country or kingdom that they're living in. Dividing walls of language and customs can make basic aspects of day-to-day life tricky with inconveniences and obstacles and extra steps. And for some, those are the least of their trials. Non-citizens have fewer protections under the law of the land, and so for obvious reasons are hesitant to ask for any legal help at all, and this makes them a target for modern slavery of human trafficking. 
for either day-to-day inconveniences or larger human rights violations, then help must often be sought through non-governmental avenues, sometimes gangs, sometimes family, friends, or the church. Paul's Ephesian audience would have been very familiar with realities like this. Regarding earthly kingdoms, like the Roman Empire, citizenship were, citizens were the minority, so the benefits of citizenship were beyond the reach of most people anyway. For the masses, civil protections or privileges were based on familial and tribal and religious or other local institutions. And regarding the visible kingdom of God on earth at that time, Gentiles were by definition not Jews. Most Gentiles in Ephesus then were cut off from the full benefits of citizenship in both the earthly empire they lived in and the heavenly kingdom of the Old Testament saints. Much of what Paul has to say in our passage then tonight is not written to privileged people with generations of the knowledge of God. They were not likely catechized in biblical theological vocabulary passed down from their parents and their grandparents. Many being added to the church and the saints of, uh, uh, the saints of Ephesus were new believers, were first-generation people of God overcoming generations of paganism and superstition and spiritual confusion. So while Paul is not simplistic with them, He nevertheless speaks to them where they're at, with this core imagery of a wall of separation uh, uh, between non-citizen aliens that that they face and the longing for full citizenship, which most believed that they would probably never experience anywhere. He's not talking, for the most part, then, to scholars or rabbis. He's speaking evangelically as an apostle to the Gentiles, and pastorally to the brand new citizens of the kingdom of God in Christ. And so he begins in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, therefore, builds off the last section, where Paul told us that the reason that we're able to begin to walk in newness of life is that God with much long-suffering, endured this entire age under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. He loved us where we, while we were still ourselves serving that prince, Satan. And because of God's love alone, the strong man, Satan, was bound and defeated by the superabundant strong man, Jesus. And as Reverend Tedrick pointed out this morning in his sermon, which was super gracious and flexible uh, of him without batting an eye, even though your intern forgot to tell him that he was even supposed to do that. He pointed out that God did all of this and gifted us the faith to walk in newness of life and good works so that we would be his treasures for his glory. Therefore, because of that, recall your gentle fleshiness for a moment. But just for a moment. The language here is not saying to keep in mind your fleshiness from the past all the time. Last week, Paul rhetorically dangled us without relief for a few moments, for a few verses, over the sin and transgression that we were dead in to make that but God really hit different. Here, though, 
We've just been clothed in grace, and we're looking back or down on our previous darkness, as if looking at water below us that we are walking on by faith. It's not necessary, then, for example, for us you to share your past sins every time you share Christ with someone. Many Christians are compelled to tell everyone that they were a drug addict or they need to share even more seedy details of their past sin every time they tell someone what Christ has set them free from. And too often what's really going on there is a sort of awkward reveling in the past or a dramatic self-deprecation. And it gives a kind of weird, uh, contradictory vibe, simultaneously touting grace, and yet continually reliving what you were set free from. Instead, Paul is saying, after this remembrance, forget what lies behind, strain forward at what lies ahead, and press forward to the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Or as Repachip and Narnia put it, onward and upward. But just for right now, for the purposes of Paul's argument, we're asked to recall what we were like. You were, he continues, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. You were fleshly. You were fleshly in the sense of being ethnic Gentiles. In other words, you were not physically circumcised in the flesh. The phrase made by hands reinforces this. And so this is how you were known. This is what you were called by those who were given the sign and seal of the old covenant. They called you the uncircumcision. Now, the way Paul says this is not derogatory or pejorative. The Jews who use this phrase did sometimes use it in that way. But Paul is just relaying a factual reality of what the Gentiles were referred to as. One translator put it this this way. You were the so-called uncircumcision, called by the so-called circumcision, a people who had the sign and seal, but were not mechanically made people of God merely by the flick of a knife. The old heart must also be cut away by the work of the Spirit. As Paul puts it in Romans 2, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, and not by the letter. And as Reverend Chuck Tedrick put it this morning, providentially pointed out, Paul states clearly in Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. It's worth noting here that many who would deny the covenant sign of baptism to uh, to children today, they zero in on verses like this. Their view is that what makes the new covenant seal better than the old is that it eliminates this inward-outward dichotomy. But then you have to ask, does it really? Does the evangelical world that doesn't baptize babies with the sign and seal of the new covenant really have churches with no false believers? Do they even have less false believers? Quick reality check reveals that these churches are the ones with often quasi-members rededicating their lives over and over and getting re-baptized over and over. And many struggle to stick the landing with confidence that they are in right standing with God. 
The problem is that they look in two places for confidence that are misplaced. One, they look at faith as an act of dedicated, intentional willpower, and baptism as a sign of that dedication. And two, without realizing it, they're essentially making election a prerequisite for baptism. A good confession of faith isn't enough for them, so they sort of wrestle within themselves. Ah, you know, I, I may kind of have believed before, but I struggled. And now what I really need is a, is a rededicated faith so I can receive a real baptism. Baptism, though, is not an unqualified seal that one is elect. It is a sign and seal that one is a member of the visible church outside of which there is not normally salvation and inside of which are the normal means of grace. And as we partake of those and have faith as small as a mustard seed, we may have every confidence that we are united to Christ. In verse 12, then, Paul aids us in the recall of our former state by giving us several things that were true of us before. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. So while it was true for the Israelites that a knife ritual without the new creation work of the Holy Spirit didn't cut it, it doesn't change the fact that the promises were for them and not for the Gentiles. You uncircumcised Ephesian Gentiles were still outside of the Old Testament, a visible church, and outside of the promise of the Messiah, like dirty, mangy, unclean dogs. Indeed, with this statement, Paul makes a sweeping theological summary of every covenantal administration of all of redemptive history. In doing so, he brings these untempled, unsynagogued Gentile Christians up to speed with the Jews who had been catechized in the oracles of God for generations all the way back to Adam. Paul unifies all of history up until Christ as a promise of the Messiah. As Paul says in Galatians 3.16, the seed promised in Genesis 3.15 is Christ. And as Christ himself explained to those who found his tomb empty in Luke 24, Moses and the prophets in all the scriptures were concerning himself. The Gentiles, therefore, being previously united with none of these promises concerning Christ, where Paul continues, were Paul continues, without hope and without God in the world. They may have hoped in their crops, uh, stretching to the next season, or the fates giving them a break for a time, or in their family, or in their friends. But when death knocked on the door, Gentiles grieved as others do who have no hope. It was not a true and everlasting hope like yours, where, uh, where you've had the eyes of your hearts enlightened to know, as Paul said in Ephesians uh, 1, what is the hope which he has called you to, what are the riches in his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Verse 13 begins, But now, in Christ Jesus, you 
who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now is a hard pivot similar to last section's but God. This pivot has a couple distinctions, though. One is that swifter relief from us dwelling on our past. And two, the focus before was on God's intention and motivation and reasons, his love and election and endurance and faithfulness. So we would have him as an inheritance and he would have us as his trophies and treasures. Here, the emphasis is more specifically on Christ himself and his shed blood. And this will ground everything that Paul has to say moving forward about the unified fellowship of the church with separation between Gentile and Jew and therefore God, uh, Gentile and God torn down like the Berlin Wall. So Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You Gentiles may, of course, as an earthly reality, still be part of a family or a culture that has been without the oracles of God for generation upon generation and who spiritually don't know their right hand from their left. It may be tricky, therefore, for you to be a first-generation believer, or you may stick out like a, some, uh, like a, thor, uh, a sore thumb in your culture, but as a heavenly, objective reality, by the blood of Christ, you have been brought near, unified with the church of God and with God himself. And the promises to you are no less binding than promises to Abraham, to Adam, to Jacob, to Moses, or to David. You are full citizens in the kingdom of God, not just second-class citizens behind the Jews. You are properly, legally grafted in. Because for one thing, even though the promises of God to Israel uh, were to Israel and the purification and other laws explicitly separated Jews and Gentiles, the incorporation of the Gentiles was not an afterthought on God's part. It was always, ultimately, the plan. Though it would be revealed as a mystery in the proper time and the, and the fullness of all eras, as Galatians puts it, and the consummation of all the ages, as Hebrews puts it, and secondly, because the purification laws separating Israel and the Gentiles and all the other laws regarding the guilt and the, and the price of all sin, which multiplied the wrath of God against sinners, were all satiated for God's people and the blood of Christ poured out on the cross. Hebrews 9 tells us that, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Paul made reference to this forgiveness through the shedding of Christ's blood in Ephesians 1.7, and he'll do so again later in chapter 5. He'll, there he'll be in full application mode, building on the doctrinal teaching of the first half of this book, and he'll exhort husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You have been made holy 
and without blemish, that you might have free access to God and all the rights and privileges of the children of God, full citizens of the kingdom of God. The dividing wall is broken down. The heavenly citizenship paperwork in your pocket is legal and binding. And not only that, as the church, we also have a green light to share this blood-purchased free gift of citizenship with our neighbors and our community to the ends of the earth and to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as we do, Jesus promises, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray.